real estate investing is changing, but there are people evolving and thriving. In this podcast, we'll listen to their stories and hopefully learn from them. I am dedicated to creating a life where I could create multiple passive income and doing something I love along the way. To me, the most important part is doing significant work and create great relationships along the way. For those that want to invest in passive income multifamilies, email me at abio at abiobiestatos.com. My name is Abio Biestatos. I am a real estate investor and entrepreneur, and I want to help you live the real estate life. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the Real Estate Life Podcast. Uh, today on the show, we have Scott Crone, and um, he has a very interesting background. He uh, used to be in a multifamily business and has evolved and gotten out of the multifamily business, which I'm very interested to, to hear why and how he's you know, now full-time into uh, storages. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I, I will add that I think that's the first time anyone's ever said that I've evolved by moving from out of multifamily into self-storage. So that, that is a first. So thank you. Am, am, am I wrong on that or, or is it? I believe it's a it's a, a better process, but not too many people would say that's an evolution. <laughs> <It's a more laughs> I went over to, to deep on that one. Yeah. Scott, uh, so give us a little bit of your background. Give us your story and how all this happened. Uh, I'm very interested to hear about your storage business because I also want to learn and I know some of my listeners would like to hear about it too. It all began when I began getting my master's degree in architecture um, over 30 years ago. And I, it was a process for me to, you know, I had to basically begin from scratch. And as, as such, I was also a TA and I got connected with a... Um, a professor who owned his own real estate development company and was an architect and a contractor. And his focus was solely multifamily, mixed use and multifamily. And so I had the benefit of working with him in his class and being his TA that he was actually having the class work on projects that he was hoping to work on in real life. And so my master's thesis basically became a 400 unit $100 million project. So I worked on it for a while I was in school with him. And then I, once I graduated, I continued working for him for another three years. So it was like six years in total that I worked for him. Got it. And um, when was your first experience purchasing your own real estate uh, that got you into started buying multifamilies? Well, the first property I purchased was in 1998. It was a, a property, it was a single family home that we we bought the property, we tore it down, and we built a new one. So we we bought it for three hundred, and uh, we sold it for a million fifty, and that was my entrance into starting my own company. That was in nineteen ninety eight. So I worked for him for six years, and then um, I worked for another company briefly in, in multifamily as well, and uh, then I made the transition to our, my own company. Um, our first multifamily was in uh, two thousand when we bought a, an acre, and we had. Um, a, a huge greenhouse on it. And we tore that down and we built 12 townhomes. And then from there, we got into uh, mixed use with condominiums and, and uh, retail on the first floor. So you were there for that wave from that 2000 to 2008. You experienced that real estate cycle. You know, there's a lot of folks that haven't experienced cycles. So you went through that cycle. Well, I went through a couple cycles. So the first one was massive inflation. And then we had the internet um, bubble burst. And then we had um, 
the 9-11, that bubble, was, there was a yeah. mini crash there. And then yeah. we had um, the uh, housing market crash bubble. And so, and then we've had COVID. So it's now been four cycles. And um, what's, what is shocking to me is that one of the reasons I sold my multifamily when I did is I thought we were at the peak of that, that cycle for multifamily. And, um, you know, I've, I've mistimed it, but I'm, I'm fine with mistiming it on the front end rather than on the back end. And so, um, you know, it's, it's continued, but, um, you know, I, I think it's uh, well beyond where the n- normal bubble should have been for multifamily. You mentioned that you were around for an inflation period. What year was that? That your first inflation period? Not this one. I want to jump into that. What year? That was, was that 91. So when, when we were working on that, I was actually, bankers were approaching us and, and talking to us about um, buying points for our, for our um, potential buyers, you know, creating programs where, because inflation, the interest rates were so high, that was, it was more difficult to actually buy uh, real estate at that point in time for the consumer. And so the banks were trying to offer points in order to get reduction in the interest rates. And so, you know, that was one of the programs that they would all approach us about when we were doing, you know, 400 units is like having a, a massive program where we could offer better incentives to buyers, customers coming in and trying to buy. And if they could get a lower interest rate, then they could afford to buy more property. We're probably, what were they, six, sevens or eights in interest rates back then? No, they were eight, nines and tens. Eight, eight and nine. Yeah, I, um, uh, I looked at my dad's HUD that bought his, his property in 1987 or 86, and it was a FHA purchase. And it was a nine percent loan with FHA. I looked back; I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I was. I, I told my dad, "You sure that's not a hard money loan?" He's like, "No, that was FHA back then. That's how it was." So it's crazy what we're seeing now. Does it, this inflation period that we're experiencing now compare to that experience you had back then? No, nowhere near. Because I mean, we're. I mean, we've been so low historically that you know we're we're now rising into what three, four, five percent, and so I think it's going to get worse. Um, I'm, you know, that's one of the reasons why we sold our multifamily and got into self storage, um, because self storage is um, recessionary resistant by nature. Um, we've studied each of the markets and we've um, tracked what was happening in the marketplace and then what was happening with the volume of the occupancy of self-storage and self-storage has been incredibly resilient throughout that entire process. Um, And so as a result of it, that was one of the reasons why we moved our portfolio into self-storage. I was looking at your, your storage portfolio uh, online. It's very interesting. It seems that you've bought some older warehouses and converted. Is that what you, some of them are? It is. Or um, industrial space and converted. Yeah, we've done about six of them right now, and we have another one on the um, that we have the permit. And we're about to begin construction as well. Were they industrial warehouses, or they were they offices? Yes. So some of them were industrial warehouses. Some of them were offices. Uh, some of them have just been empty for a, a while. Um, the first one that we bought was a, a lock um, warehouse office space, and uh, we converted that one. The second one was. Um, an office space, as well as they did testing and a little bit of warehouse in there. Um, and then uh, the third one was an old Lincoln log factory. And uh, really? so that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and then cool. Um, how, the old one, that? how old is that building? Oh, it's, it's around the turn of the century from, you know, 1900s. 
So uh, it, it's a it's a great old building. But um, yeah, so it, it's it's great history in the city of Chicago with Frank Lloyd Wright, and it was um, his son that created Lincoln Logs. And so um, you know we restored some of the original paint colors and stuff on the entrance and the sales office and those sorts of things. I mean, um, I could imagine the challenges you had to be able to get that property reinforced and and to get it to be able to sustain storages. Uh, how was that process? Yeah, uh, well, it did have a robust uh, structure in it because it was warehouse. I mean, they they had all of this, you know, uh, equipment to cut the wood, and you know, very heavy, um, you know, saws and those sorts of things. And they had massive dust collectors that would suck up all the sawdust from the entire building and and put it up on the roof in these big silos. And then they would dump the silo either to sell the sawdust or they would use it to to uh, fuel the, the boiler. And so um, we we removed all the all of the uh, exhaust equipment as well as the silos on top of the roof, and then uh, cleaned up the whole the whole building. Got it. Yeah, that could have been, that must have been an interesting process. Um, what? How do you know when? Or how do you? What programs do you use? Because that's always what interests me about storage. Is because it's very easy to say, oh, I could put a storage facility in the middle of a city, and you know. But when you're testing new markets. Uh, maybe in the, do you have any storages like in the outer skirts, like in the suburban areas, not inside the city? We do. Um, but I, I would challenge your first point uh, that, that it's easy to put storage wherever you want it. Um, there are challenges to that. So one, we do look at the demographics to just see what the supply and demand is and making sure that we're below the national average. Um, if we're above it, then it's going to be harder for us to accomplish it. But then we have to look at what the zoning is and seeing if the zoning is compatible with it. So some of the projects we've had to rezone and others where we've looked at properties and we've spoken with municipalities and, you know, they've flat out said there's no way in hell we're going to allow self-storage here. Uh, one of our facilities actually in Dayton, it was zoned for self-storage and uh, we ran into resistance with the city of Dayton because they didn't want self-storage there. But they couldn't stop it because of the fact that it was zoned for it. Zoned, zoned for it. Is there a specific program? I, I know what we use in, in to underwrite our deals in multifamily. In the world of storages, if I'm if I am interested in getting to to this business, and I want to start learning how to underwrite a storage facility, or if I want to invest with an investor like you in storages, uh, where would I get started? What, what programs do I need to start educating myself on? You know, I know we have CoStar for multifamilies and other programs like that. What programs are specific to your industry that I could educate myself before I invest into storages? Well, I wouldn't say there's like software or programs that you can to buy that will educate you on that. Um, there are different programs that people offer. Um, you know, we did a 10-week a course about how to develop um, self-storage in conjunction with a, a group of um, self-storage self operators. One one did uh, the marketing, one did the management, one did um, the internet marketing of it, and then we did how to develop it and further it. So there are programs out there like that. Um, but what I can offer for you and your listeners um, is if someone would like to learn more about the industry and they reference this show uh, on an email to us, we will send them a feasibility report. And, and the reason why I'm offering that is it's about 175 pages, and it talks specifically about a deal that we did. And it also goes into why that market is good for self-storage. But then it also talks about self-storage on a national level. And I think it's resources like that that you begin to understand and, and see 
what it is in this this feasibility report was done by a third party. So we hire them to to perform that service for us to determine whether or not the site is good. Excuse me. And so, you know, that that will give people a frame of reference as why the experts in the in the in the uh, industry have determined that you know what is good and what is not good and what to Got look it. for. And so they look at the you know the demographics, they look at the the sales price, they look at um, the absorption rate, they look at um, the exposure, they look at ease of access, they look at all those different things to determine you know whether a site is an A, B, or C, and what their market conditions are. And they go into very vast detail in terms of what the national average is and then what that specific market is because our market is just three miles. I mean, it's three to five miles. That's how specific we get with uh, self-storage. So your, your clients that are renting out uh, storages are within three miles of your facilities. That what you're saying that that's, that's what the data shows. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Is there a specific demographics or I, I want to say demographics, a specific, uh, type of city or the that you've seen as that are are needing more storages than others is there like a a, a certain amount of people need to live in an area for you to say okay you know what this is on a path to growth do you look at the growth path or we do we we, we obviously want to see areas that are growing or expanding um you know, there's two different things so you know if you only have 100 people in town then you probably don't need self-storage 10% of the population utilizes self-storage. 10%, so, that's the number. Right. It's growing, but right now the, the average is 10%. So if you have 100 people in your in your town, then, you know, demographically speaking, then only 10 people need self-storage. And more than that's likely, so they're going to leave it in their front yard or, or get put a barn in their backyard or something like that, right? So when we looked at, for instance, our, our property in the city of Chicago, we had half a million people within three miles and 66% of them were renters. And the medium income of the household was $46,000 per household. So we, we, know, we know, you know how many are married, how many are single, how many are renters, you know, their ethnicity. Um, and then we take all that information and we put it into, you know, we we analyze it and determine, okay, in a, in a normal market, in a, in a stable market, okay, where the medium income is, let's just say around $60,000, the, 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 the standard size unit that most people will buy is a 10 by 10. And That's if you true. go- I've had those. Okay. Had so, those. In, yeah. Yeah. and if you're more affluent, then the, the average size unit will increase. And as, as the community is less affluent and you have more renters, they're willing to pay a higher price per square foot for smaller ones. And so we will average out the size of our units and the configuration of our units based upon the demographics that best serve the community. Now, we've had some, some exceptions to that rule. So, for instance, our project in Milwaukee, where the medium income was around 40000 and we had half a million people within five miles and 50% of them were renters. We, we went down and we, we pushed it to 75 square feet per locker. Now, all of our 10 by 20s have sold out. Wow. Which that's is a big kind of, space. That's, that's a big space. That's a big space. Yeah. Now, comparatively, when we built, we had a facility in um, next to one of the most affluent communities in the city, as well as the country, where the medium income is well over $100,000. Um, the the 10 by 20s were sold out immediately. We converted our 10 by 10s into 10 by 20s. And that's because when people were renovating their homes, 
they were moving their entire homes and they'd come in and rent eight 10 by 20s at one time. They're like an entire moving truck would back up and they would pack the yeah, thing. Furniture are huge. Yeah, big pieces. It would be totally and, full. Mm-hmm. And your architecture design of your storage facilities allows you to remove walls to double your size, right? So you're well, we can't double 10, our size. You, we can double our unit size. Our unit size by removing a wall in between and expanding into a 10 by 20. Exactly. So that's what we're doing Got right it. now in Milwaukee. We're, we're literally taking out that middle wall and we screw it to the end panel. And now we have a bigger unit. I'll tell you, Scott, well, I, remember, I remember when I was about 25, 26, I'm 42 now, I used to be in the corporate world. And one of the jobs that I had was working for Icon Copy Services. And we, our, our clients were specific attorney, attorneys. We represented large uh, law firms. And these law firms all had storage facilities to store their files. Mm-hmm. All of them here in Miami. And I remember that our, our business was to pick up uh, paper documents and scan large volumes uh, of papers for them for for a huge, uh, you know, cases that have been going on for years. And I was surprised how many law firms had storage facilities. Does, does your data also uh, track what corporation, what type of corporations and what type of businesses are using storages or just res- or, or just you know, just residents, uh, is that well, type our, of data? Yeah. In our city of exists. Chicago facility, um, 50% of our clients are, are uh, businesses. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And it, it's not law firms. It's, it could be a contractor. He needs to put some equipment or uh, an electrical contractor who's, you know, I mean, right now we have such a shortage in uh, materials, right? So if people can go and buy because there's also massive pricing going up. So if they can oh, go yeah. in and buy, let's just say, you know, thousand junction boxes because they know they're going to need them over the next six months and then pay a lower price now, then they'll put them in the storage unit and then they'll have them as their inventory as opposed to having like a warehouse for, you know, a much larger warehouse. Yeah. So, so I, I, I had a storage uh, for, for two years and it was for that purpose. It was my contractors. I was buying materials in bulk and I'll have them store there. So that is exactly what I use my storage uh, facility for. I was a big fan of uh, the drive up storages. The one mm-hmm. floor storages where the guys could pull up with their trucks uh, instead of the other uh, three, four floors uh, storage facilities. Um, do you invest in those types? Is there a difference in the returns on those? Uh, well, generally speaking, the difference in returns is what the market is really dictating. So, for instance, we have both. We have drive up and we have multi-story buildings. But each of our multi-story buildings, you can literally drive into the building and we have a loading dock. So your truck could literally back up and you could roll the stuff right onto the truck. So each of our um, facilities that are drive-in have that ability. You can either drive into the building or you can pull a truck up to the building. Got it. Got it. Um, The bigger difference is whether they're climate control versus non-climate control and and what the market is. And so when we see a class C or class B facility, they're typically not getting the rates of a class A. And that's just because in a class A, you're dealing with a higher demographics, greater demand, those sorts of things. Uh, yeah, so the climate control is a big difference. Not as not as significant as it would be, for instance, if you compare a rural site with an urban site. There, you would have a bigger price difference. You know, a rural site you might see it like ten dollars per square foot per year in a you know in a in a huge market. You'd probably get twenty four twenty five dollars per square foot in a you know uh, per square foot annually um, for rent. Now, if you compare that to, you know, let's say an, um, an office building, which might be running at 6 or $7 per square foot, you know, triple gross net or triple net lease. 
your 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 company is at one one stop self storage for the listeners to hear, right? That is the brand we just launched this year. So that is the when you pull up to our buildings, that would be the brand that you see on the side of the walls, one stop self storage. Yeah. Those are only our facilities. We don't manage anybody else's facilities. What sets you apart from the big brands, like the most pop, the popular brands, the franchises, or this, that we see around? Uh, what sets your your brand apart from those? Well, what we really saw when we were analyzing the market and how they did things, um, you know, we we were under the management of a, of a national REIT, and we were just not getting the performance. Um, our, our conversion rate was horrible. Our, our pricing was increasing, and our expenses were out of control. And so we brought all that in house. So the more effective that we can be management wise, the better pricing that we can offer our our, our clients, our customers. So, so basically taking the management in-house, doing your own marketing is what's giving you the edge that you didn't have before with the bigger brands. Correct. Plus we have better, we have a better uh, cost control over what our, our costs are. Um, now with respect to that, we also saw that how the customer's clients experience is from the beginning. When we began the brand, we had, we had our summer of interns and we had them all calling around our facility, every single one of the big ones. And it always came down to price. They didn't want to try to figure out anything else. It was just like, what's a 10 by 10? It's $130 or $122 or $70. And maybe I'll get a call back. Maybe I won't get a call back. But there's a reason why everybody's using self-storage or that 10% is using self-storage. And for the most part, it's because they're undergoing a difficult challenge or a transition period in their lives. And if we can ease that transition, if we can make that transition better or smoother, then we're doing our job. So part of that is understanding, okay, why do you need, why do you think you need a five by five? Help me understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. You know, is, is ease of access for like, for instance, yourself, you want to be close to an elevator or close to the loading dock, or are you only going to visit your site, your space once a year and you don't really need it? So you want something more economical. So how can we best serve you by understanding what it is that you're trying to accomplish and making that transition as easy as possible for you? That's what we focus our salespeople to do is try to solve those problems that people are dealing with. So it, it comes to sales one-on-one, knowing your client and exactly their situation. And no one's situation, no one's situation is the same. So I, I see what you mean. So just your, your, so when that call comes in, you guys are training these callers to be able to identify instead of that, that person assuming they need a 10 by 10 or 10 by 20, they, they might be a better solution uh, by, by asking them more questions and getting to know what they really need. I, I get that. I get that. Cause people just sometimes are just, they assume they need something, but you, they might not need that. So that that's very helpful to understand. Um, Scott, it, it's, you have a very interesting business. Are, are you right now doing any raise or any particular uh, storage facility now that you have under contract or you're, you're raising money for that, you know, the listeners or we could, we could hear about it and you could tell us about? Well, we, we, uh, not currently, we're about to begin one. Um, so, I mean, it's the type of thing where we're under, we're finalizing the contract. And so until we have it under contract, then, you know, then we begin working on all the due diligence and the performer and all those sorts of things. So that is the, something that's coming up. Um, but all of our, that's, that's just something that's literally happening Got right it. now. Yeah. So we're, we're in a transition period right there. So if, so if I want to invest with you, um, how is the typical structure for an investor? Uh, I know how my business works. It's either a syndication or a joint venture. 
how does it work in, in your business? I, I know nothing about it. I'm interested to invest with you. How is the structures typical? Well, each of our, our properties are set up in their own LLC. And so we, ha- we have a, a membership share and we have a manager share in those two different classes. And so our investors are our members and we are the managers. And so that is the, the breakdown of how we, we structure it. And each deal is different because we look at the, the level of risk and the associated rate of return for each risk. Um, you know, the one that we're buying is an existing facility. So there's not as much risk. Um, and so therefore the, the returns are different than when we're doing a development one, then it's going to be a longer period of time and inherently greater risk. And so there should be greater reward. And so each deal is, is structured differently based upon the conditions of what we're buying. Uh, you, you always own the real estate or do you lease land also? The land leases makes it really difficult in terms of, um, from a, a couple different point of views. One is uh, leases tend to be more expensive than mortgages. And so therefore the cost structure becomes higher. Uh, two, we don't get the advantages of using, utilizing the tax structures like cost segregation yeah. and those sorts of things. And that's, that's a big one for us. Like I would say 50% yeah. of our investors are in it for the tax strategy. Uh, we've done historic tax credits. We've done opportunity zones. We've done um, in cost segregation. And so therefore we've, you know, we've provided a significant amount of tax shelters for our, our investors. Um, so if we're doing a land lease and we don't get the advantages of those, of those structures. Uh, what cities do you have in your target? I, I'll say areas. So we're, we're looking yeah, at areas. the flyover areas. So we're, we're predominantly yeah. in the Midwest. Um, yeah. we're working on projects though. Um, you know, we have facilities from Maine all the way to Wisconsin and then uh, we're working on projects all the way down to Florida. So that's, that's the triangle that we're, we're focusing on right now. Nice, man. Scott, man, it's been, it's been great talking to you. Uh, can you share with the listeners how they can reach out to you if you give them your information? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, info at Coda, C-O-D-A-M-G, as in managementgroup.com. That's info at CodaMG.com. And if they reference the show again, we will uh, send them a feasibility report. Scott, I'm very interested in your business, so I'll definitely be reaching out. And I thank you for that education. Uh, it was a lot of great golden nuggets here you gave us. And I appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Life Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to reach out to me, please go to my website, www.abiobiesteros.com.